Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 9, Eigenrobot vs. Michael Ashcroft. Good morning, everyone. I'm here with Michael Ashcroft on the first of three podcasts that I'm recording today. I'm on nicotine withdrawal. On nicotine withdrawal, I'm withdrawing from nicotine. You might be able to tell this is going to be interesting. Michael Ashcroft is here with me. He is at M Ashcroft, M underscore Ashcroft at Twitter. And he also writes at expandingawareness.substack.com, which is a new platform about the Alexander Technique, which we'll be getting into in some detail today. Michael, how are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Great to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Um, so I, I guess we could just jump right into things since I'm not sure that there's going to be a lot of order that I can bring to the table today. Um, <laughs> tell us about the Alexander technique. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing that I guess I'm, I'm most well known for shilling on Twitter. Um, cause I kind of just showed up uh, about a year ago. I started talking about this thing. Um, I'm a, a teacher of the Alexander technique and I've essentially, I think worked out a way of teaching it online, um, through, through video, through, text whereas normally it's taught uh through touch in person um and just for the for anyone who hasn't heard of it before but the best way i found to introduce what alexander technique is is to refer back to that amazing quote by victor frankel which is between stimulus and response there is a space in that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom and Alexander Technique is really a, a method for noticing that space, for expanding that space so you get more time between stimulus and response uh, and to sort of play around and explore what is possible within that space. And I talk a lot about um, the ideas about awareness um, and things that you can do with it, particularly in terms of expanding your awareness spatially. Um, and I think that's kind of the stuff that got people's attention on Twitter because it's, it's a bit adjacent to a lot of the meditation and mindfulness type conversations that we, we tend to have there. Yeah. I, I think I became aware of this first when you posted that clip from Superman where uh, Christopher Reeves is, is talking with Lois Lane. Everyone should go watch this. It's a really interesting clip. He at just at one point he just grows. You can see him going from this Clark Kent persona where he's a little bit agitated and, and speaking quickly and in you know short bursts and he just suddenly becomes much larger on the screen. You see him straighten out and and he seems to grow about six inches in height and his voice becomes deeper and slower and and just go, undergoes this remarkable transformation on the screen. And actually I, I think I intuitively understand what he's doing there. Is there some way that you can make it explicit? Yeah, and it's interesting how you, you say that you intuitively get it because I've noticed that people have a really wide spectrum of whether or not people get it quickly or not. So some people immediately just like, oh, it's that, cool, I've now understood it. Other people find it completely baffling um, and it takes a lot to, to kind of communicate that there's a there, there, so to speak. So when you watch that video um, of the, the Clark Kent to Superman transition, what's kind of going on is that when Christopher Reeve is being Clark Kent, what you see is that his body is kind of compressed and he's kind of a bit, uh, seems a bit shorter than his normal height. He's looking down. He seems quite small. And then there's a transition where he just expands outwards. He just he grows at a couple of inches. He looks up, um, and suddenly he's Superman. And you can tell there's a moment when he he changes from being Clark Kent to being Superman. Now, what you might see if you were just looking at that kind of naively of Alexander Technique, which Reeve studied, you might just think, oh, he's standing up straighter and looking up and changing his voice. Where what he's doing instead of that is actually he's going from a place of compressed spatial awareness when he's Clark Kent. So kind of he exists only in the space forward and down kind of thing and his body follows that. And then all of a sudden he switches on a much broader, more open spatial awareness. So aware of the space above and behind him and really allowing his self to expand into that space as well. And then his body follows that new configuration of awareness. And really that's what Superman is, 
it's the absence of the collapsed awareness. Uh, and the way I frame this is that Clark Kent is doing stuff to become Clark Kent and Superman is the absence of that doing, the absence of effort. And that's why he's so cool to look at, essentially. Yeah, that the way you put it there feels a bit like Taoism to me, which I should mm. be completely clear. I don't understand. I have a copy of Ursula Le Guin's rendition of of the the Tao Te Ching, which I'm surely mispronouncing on my shelf somewhere, but I haven't actually gotten around to reading it. Does that sound right to you, though? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I also confess not to having a, an in depth knowledge of of um, Taoism, but Great. there's a very concept. Post-rat. In, yeah, uh, there's a there's a Taoist principle of uh, Wu Wei. Um, which translates more or less to non-doing um, or I think Alan Watts says stuff like non-forcing um, which I think is largely what Alexander Technique touches on only from a purely Western framework uh, so there's none of the baggage of Eastern philosophy or thousands of years worth of history this was developed in the mid 1900s 1800s um, and then developed from there so the idea being that um, and the way I frame this on Twitter is that doing and doing nothing um, are actually the same thing. And then non-doing is the absence of that entire process. So an example is, for example, if you realize that you are compressed down physically, so you're slouching, um, that's a kind of a doing. And then you might catch yourself going, oh, I'm slouching. I should be upright because that's how people are supposed to be you know, I've got bad posture and you add in a whole bunch of extra muscle attention to pull yourself up and that's just a different kind of doing what you actually want to go for is to stop doing the pulling yourself down thing and allow uh, the natural uprightness to, to do itself um, and it's very difficult to communicate this clearly because it's so almost counterculture um, it's it's not something that we're used to dealing with we normally just think okay i'll do this and i'll do that and the idea of not engaging with that process is a very strange one yeah so i think one one thing that might be worth discussing a bit you start out talking i the the sort of case that i hear discussed a lot for alexander technique is simply posture which is probably a very good case for learning because you know bodily proprioception is something that everyone can do to varying degrees, but I think it must generalize quite a lot. I'll perhaps almost to everything. I mean, I've been on a tear when, when I've had threads about things that I think that I'm relatively good at or things that I've become good at doing or, or not doing. Um, and a lot of it boils down to simply paying attention to things, which maybe is sort of the same thing as being aware of things in in a more passive or not doing sense. Stumbling over words here, but I, I hope it's coming across what I'm pointing at. Did, so how, how much do you think this generalizes to, I don't know, perhaps everything? I think, I think a lot, to be honest. Um, the reason I think that it's taught through the body normally is that it's just a really a good way into these principles that you can you can very easily show someone what's going on and what they're what they're doing to themselves largely um unfortunately i think the field has got a bit stuck um in some cases focusing on bodies but it can generalize out a, a lot i think so i i'm also a, a coach and i work with some clients who are very good at kind of hustling and they're, they're very good at doing and trying harder and very successful and that kind of thing but there's a, a different way of being, which is actually if you try less hard and yell at yourself less, then something else kind of kind of kicks in and takes over. So yeah. an example might be like when you when someone throws you a ball, there are two ways that you can catch it, right? You can either kind of get anxious and be like, okay, it's really important that I catch this ball. I'm going to try and consciously coordinate where my hand should be. That I would call doing. Or you can almost not care about catching the ball and then just suddenly find that your hand is there already and has just caught the ball effortlessly and very accurately. So it, it, Alexander Technique touches on that thing as a way of accessing that thing that just catches the ball rather than forcing you to coordinate catching the ball. And that applies everywhere, I think. Yeah. 
so putting a little bit of maybe theoretical structure on this, there are two things that I'm thinking about. One is the heuristic that apparently baseball players often will use when they think about how to run to catch a ball that's been hit out into the field. And, you know, when, when you look at the way that somebody goes to catch a ball from the air, they're not, they're not computing manually a, a series of calculations in their mind where they have some sense of how quickly the ball is moving and they're, right. you know, using, using Newtonian physics to calculate the trajectory of the ball and, and so on and so forth. There's, there's something about the angle um, of, of the ball with respect to themselves that is just used almost, you know, heuristically by the body to direct how quickly you move in a particular direction. And, you know, it's, it's something that is almost hard coded into, into humans at a certain point. I'm sure that I'm not doing this formally correctly. And there are papers on this that I'll try to dig up and put in the notes, but, you know, if you were to try and calculate all of these things and using using this this physics approach you would probably do very badly at catching the ball you don't think about how quickly a car is moving and and run some some quick um you know change over time math when you're crossing the street you just kind of eyeball it and you usually do pretty well do do you think that is kind of an approximation for what's happening here just just sitting back and letting letting heuristics take over heuristics that might be pretty good yeah, I, I think so. Um, so, if we think about, and I haven't dug into the the, the deep kind of the neuroscience either, but I, I plan to. Um, if you think about the conscious mind, is actually really not very good at computing things. Like as you were saying, if if you actually had to sit down and work out, okay, the velocity of the ball is this, the air resistance is this, the whatever, like you would, it would take you hours, and you'd miss a chance. But there is something in you that not only can do that, but can do that iteratively every millisecond and keep updating and then just do it perfectly. And we get stuck, I think, when we lose trust in the fact that that thing exists and that that thing is often better at doing many tasks than quote unquote we are. Um, and you can see this really clearly actually in in sports, like where the, say in baseball, batter goes up and, and just hits an amazing you know home run. It's great. And then they go, oh, that was really good. Now I have to do that again. And what was I doing just, what was I doing to make that happen? Oh, well, I was standing like this. And, you know, their conscious mind kicks in and they choke. Yeah. So you can imagine something like Alexander Technique or whatever this principle is of noticing that you're about to choke because your conscious mind is doing something it shouldn't be doing or trying to solve uh, an equation that's not for, for it. And then going, oh, no, no, step back, allow this thing to do its thing. I'm kind of just an observer here, although I still have a role to play in setting an intention to hit the ball and then to be vigilant in not interfering ultimately. But yeah, I think it's very much that those heuristics, that, that deeper supercomputer that we have inside of us um, and just how to, how to access that. So we've used, I think we're still using quite a lot of physical examples you know, starting with posture, mm. moving on to things like crossing a street or catching a ball. I wonder where else you could apply this with, with a straightforward example. I think yeah. a lot, for example, one, one thing that I'm doing right now that's less directly physical is I'm trying to think a lot about how I'm speaking. I've noticed in past podcasts, when I've gone back and listened to it, that my speech makes me cringe a little bit. I use a lot of ums and a lot of pauses in, in places where that really shouldn't have pauses. And I, I had a thread about this a couple of nights ago where I decided when I was on a car ride with Salentalekia that I would just try to speak in such a way that didn't have that, that sort of a nature that felt pretty unpleasant to me. And this was actually a great exercise because I just started paying attention to the way that I was speaking. And by doing that, I was able to cut out a lot of the, the filler. Do you think that maps onto what you're talking about? It, it felt like a lot of just stepping back and noticing what I was doing and trying to 
adjust it in media res, but that feels like trying and maybe that's a little bit different. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot in there. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give an example that is a little easier to kind of conceptualize. And then I'll come back to the speech thing um, just to move away from the, the physical side of things. Sure. So one example that I give a lot in terms of that space between stimulus and response, for example, is let's say you're having an argument with someone and they are pushing all of your buttons, so to speak, and you really want to yell at them. Mm-hmm. You can notice your desire to yell and then consciously choose not to do it. So that is what in Alexander technique is called inhibition, which um, it predates Freud's use of the term. So it doesn't mean I'm inhibited in the sense of I'm unable to express myself. It just means I'm consciously choosing not to allow a particular response to uh, exhibit itself. And once you've recognizing, once you recognize that process, that the stimulus shows up, whatever it might be, and then you're able to constructively say no to it without forcing the opposite of it. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you want to yell, but instead of yelling, you're kind of biting your tongue and tensing your muscles and shaking and all that kind of stuff, because that's a, a very unconstructive way of not yelling at someone. It just means that you're choosing not to yell at them, when, even though you really want to. Then you suddenly have a lot more choice with regard to what you do next. You suddenly realize, oh, I can go any direction. I can, I can ask what's going on with them. But that only becomes available to you once you've stepped out of your automatic habitual response, which might be to yell back. So when it comes to, say, speech, I suspect that when you're in a kind of mode of uh, umming and ahhing and whatever it is that you just like, it's more likely, I think, that in that mode, you're involving yourself in speech. So I, I noticed in the past, I used to uh, sort of plan ahead every couple of words, like what's the next thing I'm going to say going to be. Whereas now that I'm applying this stuff, I'm much more able to just let the words come out and I'm, I'm no longer meta-processing what the next words will be. So I guess what I'm doing there is that I'm seeing the desire to interject, to say a certain thing, to whatever, I'm inhibiting that and then other stuff shows up in its place. And I don't know necessarily where that other stuff comes from in the same way as I don't know how I hit the ball or catch the ball, but I am sort of making space for it. Um, and it's almost like a dance. Uh, you, you kind of, you move into and out of this space and then uh, <laughs> to use the improv example, you kind of, you yes and whatever comes up. Yeah. Interesting. So I have, I have so many questions about this. I'm going to try to keep them orderly. How, how do people, who wants to learn this? I mean, you teach about this and I assume that you're not necessarily going and advertising a lot. What, what brings people to you to, to, to sort of learn these practices and what do they typically want? And also do they continue to want what they say they initially wanted over time? Or does that change as they learn more? That's a really good question. Um, so let me tell you what people normally want when they when they go for this. And then what I'm seeing people say via Twitter are, are wanting, which is quite different from that in many cases. Hmm. So traditionally, you would see an Alzheimer technique teacher in a couple of fairly uh, niche examples, either you're a performer of some kind, so a musician or an actor, which is traditionally where it's, it's most well-known. And most um, music conservatories and, and acting schools have a resident Alexander Technique teacher. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah it's, it's super common. And that it's mainly in the dramatic world is mainly where you see it. So a lot of the kind of Shakespearean actors, a lot of the... So Robin Williams did Alexander Technique. Um, there's just a long list of, of people that you know who are actors who have done it. Um, and that's what kind of gives them their, their stage presence and particular ways of inhabiting a role. So that's the, the main thing it's used for. The other thing traditionally is more on the postural element. So I have back pain, I have you know, tightness, whatever. Normally you'd go and see an AT teacher after you've exhausted every other route because it's still not particularly well known. It's quite niche. So a physio might say, oh, I can't help you go off and do something else and you, you'll find this. 
So that's how it's normally seen in in the world. What I'm finding with um, the work online is that it's a very different set of people because I don't talk about those things on Twitter or elsewhere. And I should also say that I don't actually have an in-person practice either. I've had a 10-year corporate career working in energy innovation and I trained as a teacher part-time. So I don't have my own physical in-person practice like most teachers do. So I think that's helped me with this different perspective. But online, the, the main type of person who seems to be coming to my course is actually very analytical, very um, in their head. Um, a lot of coders, for some reason, um, have, huh. have come across me. Either that or they're kind of adjacent to the mindfulness space. And they're curious as to when I talk about use of awareness and and the dimensions and textures that it has that it helps them with their practice for some reason in a way that yeah. this language doesn't exist or these frames don't exist in the domains uh, that they're coming from. So to answer your, your second question about how things change, it's super common, I think, for people who come into it for postural performance reasons to discover, oh, it's actually this other thing that's more like Zen or whatever, um, and then have a complete shift. That's what I was. I, I came in because I have really bad knees. Um, I thought, oh, I can use this thing to protect my knees maybe. And then I had my first session and left feeling extremely basically high and floaty and very present. I was like, okay, there's something else going on here that isn't just about posture. Um, and I think people just people who enjoy playing with their own subjective experiences um, and perception of the world tend to get a kick out of this kind of thing. Yeah. So thinking about the timeline, do you, you mentioned in, I think we, you were podcasting with becoming critter, right? Yeah. Is that okay? Yes. I thought so that I, I loved listening to that. Um, one thing that, I am wondering is you notice a lot, you, you mentioned that you can just almost sort of immediately tell how, what people's posture issues are when you have some sort of an in-person session with them. And it's almost reflexive for mm-hmm. you at this point. I'm curious if you notice other sorts of, I mean, sort of things that are analogous to posture that people do uh, when, when you encounter them. And if, if you could identify some of these like common failure modes, hmm. if you want to call it a failure that the people enter into that are more say social or self-expressive more, more along the lines of say, if you were to encounter Clark Kent, if you would just notice something about the way that he was holding himself. Yeah. It, so going from the physical example, the thing that you would normally notice is some kind of holding. So someone is fixed in some way. They're they're pushing their pelvis forwards and they're stuck that way and they don't know they're doing it. And one of the the things that you learn through AT is you get a greater sense of optionality. So you're no longer stuck in a single rigid groove that you you can't leave. Uh, A rigid groove probably is the wrong analogy there, but you know what I mean? You're you're kind of stuck in that way of being. And then what people don't really realize about posture is that it's not a case of there is a good posture and a bad posture. A good posture is the absence of being stuck in any one posture. And you see the same kind of thing. So what I mean by that is you're, you're available for anything. You are, you could go anywhere. You could move in any direction. You could um, do whatever you wanted to do. You're not, you're not overly um, fixed on one thing. Yeah. Now where I see this elsewhere is, like very rigidly held views for example uh so if someone i'm talking to has a very firm opinion on something i kind of see that as being similar to uh, a very held posture uh, and some um some well-known proponents of alizana technique so aldous huxley and john dewey uh talked about this so they said that them learning um alizana technique directly from um the originator fm alexander helped them to hold philosophical debates more easily because they were able to see when they got stuck in rigid thinking and step out of that and become available for other things to come up instead. That doesn't mean um, in the sense of if you open your brain to open your mind too much, your brain will fall out. It doesn't mean that you'll accept anything. It just means that you're no longer totally affixed to one particular interpretation, view, opinion, way of seeing the world or way of being. And I really think that 
there's a strong correlation between if you are someone who holds very firm views and isn't flexible in them, chances are you'll also hold your body <laughs> in much the same way. Um, and that touches on a whole domain of mind and body being the same thing. But that's the kind of thing that I tend to see. If you have a fixed mindset, uh, then you probably have a fixed body as well. Interesting. This this is sort of reminding me of, I think it was um, not Mark, uh, Paul Graham essay about keeping your identity small. And, you know, this idea of, well, if, if you start to identify with some, with something, you often find yourself having a very difficult time leaving that behind, even if, even if it's something that perhaps you should. So people who, you know, even if you want to, even if it would make sense to grow into being something else at some point in time, or, um, you know, if, if you identify as, I don't know, um, you know, pick, pick some ideology, you end up almost straitjacketed with that identity mm. and it becomes load bearing in, in your daily life. And, and you almost miss a lot of opportunities, perhaps I, I haven't read this essay in a while, so I'm not sure what he identifies as the major problems. It almost just feels axiomatic to me at this point. Um, so that's not really, I don't know if there's any follow-up question necessarily, but, um, I'm, I'm, definitely trying to, to tie this to other things that I, I think map onto it pretty well. Um, so what what are some failure modes for people who are learning this? It, it seems like with anything that that's sort of a useful general tool, there might be ways of picking it up that end badly in some sense for, for people who are learning. Yeah, I think so. Um... So there's two that, that come to mind. Um, one on the more body side of things is there's a, a, an unfortunate bit of jargon in the Alexander world, which is to refer to those those students and those teachers who get stuck in this mode as Alexandroids, um, who people who kind of they can't move without checking their neck is free, and they kind of get way too caught up in. Um, applying the thing without actually being fully alive in the world um so you know oh i want to pick up the ball but i need to kind of go through a five-step checklist in my head to make sure that yes i can move freely and then i can pick up the ball um whereas in my mind that should be much more automatic and these things there should be much better sense of aliveness and spontaneity and that kind of thing so i guess if you go across the um, meditation tradition i might call that a kind of um dullness uh, gross dullness or something subtle dullness um so that's one i see people kind of just get too caught up in the thing and that gets in the way another one that i see is on the more awareness end of the spectrum you can kind of you can kind of get high off your own supply so to speak yeah. and again get, get a bit detached so this this lends itself quite well to the discussion of the expanded awareness and how you actually go into this stuff so once you realize that your awareness, so the things that you could notice um, has a, a shape and a size and is consciously controllable, it's very easy to kind of expand it in such a way as you feel like you've taken a low dose of drugs of some kind and you just feel really nice and just kind of, you just feel really good. It's very easy to then get kind of uh, disconnected or unearthed almost um so it's like you increase your voltage but you haven't grounded yourself at the same time yeah um, and that's a very common if not failure mode but stumbling block on the journey to fully integrating this thing like yes i can get really high but i also stay very grounded at the same time kind of all at once um and that's something i've seen for some people during training this that reminds me a bit of the way that Colin of Zion was talking about psychedelics in his podcast with Power Bottom Dad a few mm -hmm. months ago, <laughs> which I think it's it's only a loose connection, but he was talking about his use of psychedelics and how he thought psychedelics was something that was, I think I'm paraphrasing him correctly, psychedelics was something that was important and it was good, but it was just a step. And... 
it's maybe easy to get too caught up in that rather than sort of taking a lesson from that and integrating it into your life, but not necessarily thinking about it all the time, but making it, I don't know, maybe almost more part of that reflexive nature, that thing that you can just fall back on as a mode of being, but that you're not necessarily aware of all of the time. Yeah. I, well, who was it who said it? Was it Alan Watts or Timothy? One of, one of that lot, Timothy Leary said, it was Alan Watts, when, you, when you've got the message, hang up the phone with mm. regards to psychedelics particularly. Yeah. Now, I, I didn't listen to that podcast, but like I can totally see how, okay, I want to keep going back into that space and kind of slamming my neurons with that same information probably gets a bit unhelpful with time. In the same way, it's, I think it's easy to over-index on particular dimensions of the skill set in Alazan technique. So it's, yes, it's fun to expand your awareness and feel good, but then there's something else around, well, okay, what do you do with that? How do you apply that? What else is there? How do you fully integrate all of those things into one cohesive, integrated um, way of being rather than getting too strong and getting too imbalanced in one direction? So I guess there's a similar failure mode of psychedelics there. Like, what do you do with it? Like, once you've got the insight, once you've got the skills, what else do you add to that and how do you integrate it into your life? And that's, I think, a similar similar thing to care about when playing with your awareness in this way yeah another another thing that i've been thinking about with the with this have you have you read or absorbed from the water supply anything about the master and his emissary it's one of those books that is very much on my list and actually i basically quit my job so that i can read books like that but yeah i know the, gen- <laughs> I know the general principle of left and right brain but there's a lot of nuance i've missed yeah, well, I've I've mostly absorbed it from from talking with Salentalekia. Maybe last summer she went through it, and and it was a pretty interesting experience just taking it in secondhand. So the the author's idea has <clears throat> part of me to to do with this idea that there's a sort of a structured and explicit mode of thinking that is more heavily done by the left brain, and then this kind of chaotic and inchoate, but very fast and I don't know, integrated mode that your right hemisphere tends to fall into. And, you know, you'll, you'll almost surely see it when you're reading or now you will, but this, I, I wonder if there's some extent to which with Alexander technique, there, there's some kind of relaxation and permitting more of these right hemisphere intensive modes of, of existing taking over it's I, I think this maps a bit on to thinking fast and slow although i'm more hesitant to recommend that i think because a lot of the a, a lot of the specific experiments in that book are have have failed to replicate so i mean caveat emptor with everything that i'm saying but there it does seem like there's some kind of a pattern here and maybe, maybe another interesting thing that i'm thinking about is all you know when you're describing when you're describing the Alexander technique and to the extent that I understand it and to the extent that it maps onto all of these other things, I wonder what is actually going on. You know, there's, there's this mind body connection and, and to what extent each influences the other and to, to what extent they're the same thing. And it's interesting thinking for me right now, thinking about the phenomenology of it and, which I may or may not be using correctly. I think I'm mostly familiar with that in the sense of physics rather than however it's used for, for sort of mindfulness. And, but, but just the experiential, that what it is qualitatively like to be doing this and how that actually maps on to existence. And it, it feels a bit trippy thinking about that and, oh, yeah. and what exactly is going on as I'm just evaluating how I'm holding myself at any point in time and even just what it's like to be aware of things versus not. I mean, I would say most of the time during my day, I'm just kind of running on autopilot. And when I'm doing something like evaluating, you know, in, in that moment, what it is that I'm doing, what I'm aware of, it feels almost like I'm taking this very, very scarce resource or just, becoming aware of the fact that I exist, which I'm often not. What, what, what do you make of all of that? <laughs> it's not much of a question, I guess. No, no, it's, it's great. Um, 
it, I mean, it, it really is extremely trippy, as you say. Um, and actually, so Malcolm Ocean has been pushing me to read Martian's Emistry for a long time, and I, I can't wait to do it. I would love to get myself in an, MR, an fMRI machine when mm. I when I do this, because I, I would love to see what my brain is doing when I switch this thing on and off. And it really is a switch, right? It's something I can go from completely off to completely on in a second. And there is a certain mental movement that you make as you go from compressed awareness to expanded awareness. And the closest analogies I've found in day-to-day life, and that's the best way I've found to get people to understand, oh, it's that, is let's say, you know, you're looking at your phone, you're scrolling Twitter, as we all do more than we should. um, And then suddenly, for no apparent reason, you suddenly become aware of what you're doing. And you're like, oh, actually, hell, I'm in a room, uh, there's space around me. And like, there's a, there's a moment where you kind of, you come back to yourself and you kind of ask, where have I been for the last half an hour? And in that moment, your awareness expands. And there's, there's something really powerful about that. It's like you suddenly become aware of being aware. That, and I'm not saying that you always have to be in that mode, but it's good to have the choice of whether you want to be in that mode or not. Otherwise, as you say, you end up kind of on autopilot, a bit unconscious. And that in particular is very visible in person. So when someone goes off into automatic mode and you you slip in and out of this on a second by second basis, normally when you are um, engaging in some kind of habitual activity. So a very common one in, in in person lessons is just going from a standing to a sitting position. So you might be standing up, you're aware of being aware, you're aware of the space, you're out of the room, all that kind of thing. And as soon as you begin the movement to sit down, your meta awareness, your your spatial awareness collapses down. You go onto autopilot and then it re-expands when you've stopped. Almost as if you've pushed the sit down subroutine, you've engaged the program and then you it finishes and you're back again. Now, it, it's really valuable to be able to maintain the open awareness while engaged in activity such that you can do the self-monitoring, you can make other choices. You could decide to stand up in the middle of sitting down if you wanted to, um, rather than being kind of on autopilot. Now, I don't know what's going on in the mind. I don't know how this would manifest itself on the scan. But I think there's really something really powerful and important going on. And all I can do, I guess, from my own perspective is explore what this is like from the inside and then tell people, well, these are the things you're looking for from a phenomenological perspective on the inside. This is how you would experience this thing. And then you can learn to play with it. And once people have that basic toolkit, really fun stuff starts to happen because you suddenly realize, oh, look, I've been doing this thing in a really silly way my entire life. Why am I, why am I um, like bending over this far into my computer when I can just sit back slightly, for example. Uh, it's a trivial example, but it's that kind of choice it gives you once you've realized it. So one thing, another thing that I'm thinking about, and apologies if I'm being a bit desultory, I I can definitely feel the nicotine withdrawal affecting me at this point. <laughs> no um, so it, it seems to me that there maybe was a moment or an epoch in the mid 20th century, I mean, especially the 60s, right, where some of these ideas were more culturally mainstream. The two examples that shot into my mind were one, the the musical hair, which is great and I love it uh, in in some ways. The you know they there's a song where they're ta- taking LSD and they're talking about total self awareness. The the other example, which I think maybe maps onto an idea of just being like in that aware state all of the time, which seems impossible, but maybe people were gunning for it. The other is from Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, where there, so Michael Valentine, this alien, this, this human who was raised on Mars comes to Earth and ends up in Jubal Harshaw's um, <laughs> desert compound slash harem. And <laughs> all of the girls in the harem are, you know, go, go around and make out with Michael Valentine. And they're discussing what it's like and why he's good to make out with. And one of them mentions that he tends to be completely present 
in kissing her when, when he's doing that. And he's not thinking about baseball and he's not thinking about whatever else is going on in his life. He's just in, completely in that moment and, and kissing her. And the, these seem like they're mapping on to the same kind of awareness that you're talking about. And perhaps people thought about that or were more interested in that sort of thing in, in that era and and since then, it seems like there's been a retrenchment away from that, and there's there's not been any popular awareness of awareness. I'm curious whether that checks out with you, or whether that makes sense to you. And if so, if you have any ideas for why that might have faded, like come into the zeitgeist or faded out since. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a good point, isn't it? I mean, the the 60s and 70s were, were known for the, the kind of the more the psychonaut exploration of what it's like to have subjective experience stuff um and it does feel like we've lost that in in recent well, decades um if i had to theorize on why i would say something something hustle culture honestly yeah um, i know that seems a bit glib but when no, no. you when you overemphasize the need to do to achieve to succeed to get to a certain place in life that really reinforces the, I have to make it work myself. I have to hit the ball. I have to catch the ball. I have to do our kind of thing. Um, whereas I think in the 60s and 70s, there was a much greater sense of, hey, let's just be, let's just vibe. Um, we didn't have to do anything or get anywhere. It's all for its own sake. So I think if there's a big zeitgeist shift between now and then, it's like, then, sure, let's, let's be playful. Let's just do things because they're fun and for their own sake whereas now everything is in service of a, a long-term goal and that i think switches on a very different way of being and that just seeps into the the cultural this is water supply so to speak um that makes it more difficult to to engage with this and, and those of us who do stay in these places i think are seen a little bit suspiciously by by the mainstream by by hustle culture except for the fact that there are plenty of people who kind of sit across both worlds and you might work for your tech startup, but you also microdose LSD or something. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, well, okay, you're doing it for productivity reasons. You're doing it to, to get better, but also you're taking LSD and, and that kind of, that does show you other ways of being. So I, I don't think we've gone completely in the wrong direction, but yeah, I think it's, it's more difficult for us to step out of the idea that you have to try hard hustle all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I wonder I mean, I could tell a story about just changes in drug culture over time, which doesn't exactly answer the question of why things change um, from, you know, something like hustle from from something like psychonaut culture to hustle culture. But I mean, the, the 80s were famous, I think, for the proliferation of cocaine use in the United States. Mm. And I've I don't think I've ever used anything like cocaine I've, I've had stimulants before and it's a very different experience than than something that that's more on the more on the hallucinogenic side of things that i think is more reflective in a sense like maybe everyone just started using cocaine in the 80s and that, <laughs> that caused a collapse well even um, that right so why was there a shift towards cocaine away from psychedelics yeah, like, there must have been something driving that shift into oh well you know there's it's an amazing song um, it's just called I do coke um, and <laughs> it's very straightforward. just to just to like out of context I do not take coke the song is called I take coke yes <laughs> and, <laughs> and the the lyric is just like I do coke so I can work harder so I can earn more so I can do more coke and it just <laughs> like cycles through that lyric for four minutes with a heavy beat it's great and that's amazing. Um, it's really good. I highly recommend it. And it just feels like that epitomizes the the cultural need to achieve and to get somewhere and to do it and it, whatever. Like it's just very different from taking LSD and then like lying in a field for eight hours, right? It's, it's just a very different yeah, thing. yeah. Well, I mean, there's that. I I mean, it seems like the song of the '80s in some ways is "Material Girl," which mm. is, I think, it's a fun ass song and and also it maybe epitomizes that kind of i don't know directional or driven driven zeitgeist i'm i'm not i'm not quite sure about this it's it's a bit hard to explain but zeitgeist is something that it seems to me is extremely real and moves people in powerful ways 
and I don't have a theory of it and maybe, maybe nobody does, but getting some kind of an understanding about what these, what these dominant, dominant spirits are is, mm. is, is something that could, I mean, if we could come up with some kind of a, a way of getting a handle on it, that would be very interesting to me. Um, cool. So, um, let me just see if there's anything that I'm missing here. Um, but, 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 what, one, one other thing that I'm thinking about a bit, whenever you're talking about sort of different modes of thinking or even just self-improvement generally, there's, there's always some concern, whether it's tacit or explicit about the, the possibility that something might be kind of culty. Is, is that something that happens with Alexander Technique practitioners and, or, or users? So touch woods, I've not come across any particular culty issues in the AT vibe, in the AT uh, space, because I think it's, at its heart, it's fundamentally non-coercive. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, let's say I'm teaching someone in person, and it's a touch-based thing normally, and I put my hands on them, and there's a very particular quality that a, a, a teacher has when they use their hands. It's, it's not a, I will rearrange you and do anything to you. It's kind of a listening and suggesting mode, but there, there's a requirement for consent. And you're constantly checking back and forth with everything that you do. Is this person, whether consciously or not, consenting to go along with this? And if they don't, then it doesn't work. And when I'm uh, when I'm teaching in that mode, uh, if I'm not in the right um, way of being, if I'm stuck in a kind of, I need to fix them, I need to change them, and I've lost my own, if I've, I've switched the thing off in myself and I've lost the, the Alexander Technique thing, it just will not work. I'll just be some guy putting my hands on someone else. And I'm not a teacher in that moment. When I inhabit it and live it myself, and then I put my hands back on them, then magic happens and it all works and everyone you know, is great. So I, I suspect there's something around that um, that is somewhat self-limiting. And that you can, I think, use these powers for evil. But I think it's very difficult to get to the point where you have that level of skill and then use your powers for evil because you have to go through the process of of recognizing that it only works when you're, un when you're not trying to impose yourself on someone else. If that makes any sense. I'm a bit rambly there, but... No, no, yeah. it does. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. I... I think I need to think about that a bit more. My my reaction to that is that if you're somebody who's extremely aware in a given moment and th there's a real power in that, and if you were to be somebody who was a monster, you might be able to exploit that in some way, but, but I'm not sure about that. And it's, I mean, it's definitely something that leaves... I tend to be pretty aware of when, when it feels like there's some kind of a power differential between me and somebody else. And mm. I, I mean, the, the idea of, you know, doing something exploitative is horrifying to me, but it just seems like there's always some kind of a left-hand path mode for, for any, any mode like this. And I, I'm definitely not trying to be accusatory. I'm, I'm just no, no, trying I think to think through the space. It's a really fair question. And I would absolutely not want to imply that there's no chance of it happening. Um, and I'm actually also very interested um, in in seeing if it if it were to happen, how would it happen? Because you're right. Once you have a certain level of skill with awareness, and actually, there's a good example you mentioned earlier around why is it so great to make out with that guy in the book, right? Yeah. In that example, let's say that he has a particular skill with his awareness. He's very present with you. He's very much in the same awareness space as you are. Once you're in that space, it is it is possible to um, communicate an intention. Um, and an obvious example of this is in dancing, right? You, if you're dancing with someone mm. you're, you're leading, you don't tell them, well, we're now going to walk over here and go over there and then do this. You are setting and communicating an intention through, through touch and through eye contact and whatever. And your dance partner just knows what's going on. Like they just know where to go. Yeah. Because they're, they're picking up on your intention and they're consenting to go with you. Now, 
similar things are possible just with awareness just not even not not to the trash not anything like that but if i'm talking to someone and i'm aware that you know i'm attracted to them or i want them to do something for me or whatever there is a bit of a temptation oh well i can just use this awareness thing but again like i was saying earlier it wouldn't work because as soon as i'm trying to impose something my awareness is collapsed in the wrong way and it just wouldn't work it would come across as kind of weird yeah um, so i i do think like what you're saying is fair and i'm sure people would be able to do it i also think that there are some kind of built-in safeties that you'd actually have to kind of actively work around if you were that evil yeah yeah that makes sense um the one other thing that i wanted to touch on especially after listening to that podcast with nick was maybe the idea of systematizing something like this where where it seems like you have a pretty clear theory and perhaps some stages that that, that one could use to work through to you mentioned say five steps that that people are taught about when they're going through some set of motions that maybe they get too caught up on and i think a th- thing that is often true in the way that I learn and process information is that I can take these steps, but it often, everything just tends to collapse and become almost immediately implicit. Mm -hmm. And I don't think through steps very much at all. And, (laughs) you know, I, I I mentioned that you have a very orderly way of thinking about things and moving through information. And I, I think I tend to be, you know, I said desultory earlier, but it's almost very hard for me to move from these explicit steps to, or, or to to take wherever I am at a given point and extract a series of steps that somebody else could take to reach the conclusion that I get to. Sure. And I don't know if I necessarily have a point about that, but I, I did want to throw it out there as something that we had discussed discussing. And I'm curious what you make of that, actually, and just just in terms of me poking at my own cognition. Yeah, I remember actually we had an exchange somewhere on Twitter around, I think, how you thought would be very different in terms of seeing the world. So if I come across as very, maybe, amusingly left brain, organized, methodical, and you said, that I think you were more right brain um, and implicit. Um, I think if it weren't for the training that I've had as a teacher and going through the last year, year and a half of teaching the stuff online, I would be in the same place. I wouldn't necessarily know how I do it. I would just have done it enough times and trained and learned. I think I was just very lucky that when I went through my training, I was paying attention to the the phenomenology of what I was experiencing such that I can now communicate it. And the, and the fact that also for most of my life, I was a STEM nerd, <laughs> essentially. Um, <laughs> yeah. And came to this reasonably, um, well, not late, but kind of from that perspective. And I was always the annoying, rational guy questioning the woo in the training sessions right kind of what's mm. the evidence for that and all that kind of stuff like why why was it can we falsify this <laughs> all that kind of thing yeah um, so i think smashing those two views together kind of this very implicit this very difficult to put words around experience with a fundamental need to put words around and explain in terms of natural laws has led to this kind of oh well i can because i was paying attention so much to exactly what i felt under what circumstances and in what steps and because I've gone through a kind of weird product discovery audience first approach on Twitter to kind of figure out, okay, well, what's your experience like this? Does this work on you? How about this? How about this game? I means I'm now able to do this. So I mean, for you, I guess, I, it seems like you've had no need to um, divine, kind of figure out step by step, okay, what exactly is it such that I can communicate it? Because you just do it. is that fair i mean do you feel like there's any area of your life where you've had to explain step by step to kind of cause you to get that level of understanding or skill for someone yeah maybe i mean i came out of stem too and so you know thinking i i've I've taught a lot of introductory economics courses and you know economics when you solve a problem in economics there is i don't think about I mean, you might take something like game theory, which I, I don't know if you've studied it before, but when you have a game theory problem, you know, there are, there are methods by which you can diagram a game 
and say, these are the players, these are the payoffs, these are the, this is the action space. Now, given these things, here's how you can come to a solution. And, you know, somehow defined the solution is solution is an interesting concept here and almost more interesting than the actual game itself. And in those cases, this is actually possibly a good example. The first time I took game theory, I didn't pay much attention to it and I got a B in the class. And then when I took it again in graduate school, everything just immediately clicked for me. And there was a short period of time where I was working out these rules for how to go through and solve these problems. But when it came time to take my prelim exam, which was heavily game theory based, I was in a pretty bad place in my life and I hadn't studied much. And I think I just went through and crushed it. I And, and a lot of it was just looking at the problem and then simply seeing what the solution was. So it was something that became, you know, pretty immediately this kind of implicit problem solving for me. But then, you know, I've gone and I've I've gone and I've been able to teach people how to work through this more algorithmic approach to solving a game. And I think that's helpful for them, but I've never quite figured out how to get from here are a series of steps you can use to solve a game to what I actually typically do, which is mm-hmm. just look at the game and see the solution. Come on, it's it's <laughs> and and then there's a lot of like stepping back and trying to explain how I got to that point, but for the most part, at least for for non-trivial games, it it feels like it's more reconstructing a solution that I just end up seeing. And I don't think I have psychic powers or anything like that. It's it's more a matter of just I don't know, identifying a pattern and internalizing it. And like just to the extent where I immediately see it play out, sort of like someone catching a ball. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'm reminded actually of the idea of what's it? Um, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence. Um, oh, I like that. Competence and then conscious competence. Right, this is the four steps you go through for any new skill. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple of interesting transitions there. Right. So when you're going from conscious competence to unconscious un- incompetence, conscious competence to unconscious competence, really hard to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you go, when you go from I know that I'm going through this procedurally step by step and then suddenly I can just do it. And I had the same experience studying physics. I was like, well, for the first couple of years, equations, algebra, integration, blah, blah, blah. Towards the end, I was just like, well, obviously the answer is this. Now I should kind of figure out how I got there because I have to write the exam script. (laughs) You can't just put the answer. Um, I don't think you can teach that. So what I've found... In, well, in anything, particularly design technique, but you can teach the steps, but the actual moment of, oh, now you get it implicitly, it's an, it's entirely an inner journey. I can't give that to anyone. Yeah. Um, I just don't think it's possible. But that's almost the point, right? That's when someone makes the knowledge their own. Yeah, okay. I like that a lot. And that that inner journey stage where you just come to the point where you almost integrate everything. My my dad was a psychometrician and he talked about learning statistics as as a process of the word he uses chunking where you you take these steps and you have this this you know complex idea in math and when you first learn it you kind of grind through each of these steps and when you can move on to the next stage is when you don't have to think about all of those constituent steps you just see them as a single unified whole and then you move on to the next stage which involves operations over or manipulations of those subsidiary steps as a whole and you can never really do that effectively if you have to keep thinking about the constituent steps sort of sort of like it would be very difficult to solve say a physics problem if you had to think about what addition or subtraction meant at any given stage so yeah maybe, maybe that's the Maybe that's the real stumbling block, how you how you can help somebody if if at all, and maybe you just can't like transition from the steps to to that kind of unified integrated whole. It, it does feel like there's like uh, a progression of competence as kind of student, um, expert, or someone who's proficient in the thing, and then teacher. So we start off with I have to step through procedurally. This is how addition and subtraction or integration happens in kind of step by step. 
then you just do it. You just know it's implicit. But then as you go into the teaching mode, you have to then kind of reach back into your own subjective experience. Like, okay, well, I know that I just get it. I also know that there are steps. Can I kind of smash those two things together in such a way that I can keep my, I just know how it works while also explaining the um, the steps to get there. And that to me, it doesn't just feel like an extension of the proficient level. It feels like a fundamentally new level. Yeah. Is accessed by teachers. Oh, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. I'm, I've definitely myself never felt like I understood something nearly as much as when I was able to teach it to somebody else. And oh, hello, cat. Um, I, I like that an awful lot. Uh, inc- highly encouraging everyone who's listening, go and figure out how to teach somebody something. It's, mm. it's a remarkable experience. And I'm not sure a lot of people get that experience on the reg- on a regular basis in their day-to-day life, but teaching is genuinely one of the, maybe one of the most meaningful or instructive experiences that, that I've had in my life. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'd, I'd actually add, so in my, my own training and design technique, I've done very little actual teaching of, um, people who come in for AT lessons, how I spent most of my time post post qualifying as a teacher is to teach other teacher trainees how to teach because that's the school oh, that wow. I basically hung out in. So I, I have done in-person lessons. I've done that, but I haven't set up my own business, but because I've, I came through that school and kind of went back to help out. I work with the next intakes essentially. Um, so what you're doing then is like an even greater level of abstraction is like, projecting into what they would be experiencing and teaching when they were teaching somebody it gets very um yeah kind of higher order at that point so you're kind of projecting yourself into multiple levels of this is what they would understand this is what you currently understand this is what i understand and how do i translate between all these things at once so teaching someone how to teach something i think is also a very valuable thing to do I'm I'm in awe of the amount of meta that we've accumulated here. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, 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 no. I highly encouraged. Um, cool. Is is there anything else that you'd like to talk about with the Alexander technique? I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I think we've done well. I think that's fine. Um, that's a lot. We've lot we've gone through there. Cool. Um, how's what's it like quitting your job? I'm in sort of a similar state where I'm I'm on leave, but I haven't quit, and I'm going to go back at some point. But I, I feel like we're maybe in some kind of a similar state. It's weird, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, I don't know yet. It's been, it's been about two weeks um, since, since I had my last day. And for context, like I've been working for 10 years in corporate and consulting environments. I just left KPMG. Um, and I kind of realized that I've been in structures that want me to be in a certain place at a certain time to act a certain way and do certain things for like my entire life, school, university, and then job. Yeah. And like, I don't know how to be outside of that basically. Um, and it's just, it's super weird. Uh, so I, I remember that on, on Twitter, so Visa shared uh, a GIF of when you take zoo animals out of the zoo and put them in the wild, they'll just kind of walk up and down their cages as if they were still in the cage like in circles or up and down not realizing they just go and walk off into the woods because they're free now yeah they're so habituated to it and i think i've got a lot of that stuff like kind of well it's 9 30 i should be working right or okay i can now have lunch for this hour between between 12 and 1 and I, no 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 you can do whatever you want like, it just hasn't clicked yet for me um and there's a lot of decompression as well so there's a lot of kind of built up tension that's just releasing itself. So the first four or five days, I was unbelievably tired. Um, and I keep having to like take naps and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a oh, peculiar wow. experience, honestly. Yeah. I, I had an experience a bit like that between one of the job. Well, that's not entirely true. When I was in graduate school, I was sort of in that position after I, after I finished my orals and I was just hypothetically working on my dissertation, but I had two years where I was working pretty hard on my dissertation. And after that, I lost interest. I was more interested in getting a job, but I was still in grad school. And, you know, I, I, I had enough teaching gigs to keep me to keep me fed, but there wasn't much structure in my life at all. 
that was actually pretty bad for me because I, I did hypothetically have something that I was supposed to be doing. And I was just spending a lot of time not doing that, which it turns out is pretty exhausting. Yeah. Um, but but then I, I had a period of about three or four months between the time that one job that I, I had started and, and my current job began. And in some ways that was pretty stressful because I, I had some other things going on personally in my life at that point. But eventually it started to feel pretty liberating. And I, I ended up spending most of it, you know, apart from dealing with these issues, just relaxing, listening to a lot of history podcasts, playing World of Warcraft, frankly, which is one of my favorite things to do. And I, I actually get a lot out of it. But I ended that period pretty burned out. And by the end of it, I, I felt pretty rejuvenated and just really relaxed mm-hmm. about things. So yeah, hope, hope for a similar outcome for you. It's that, that period of going from school and I mean, school is ultimately pretty stressful for me, even though I enjoyed the process, um, to just having a period where you can sit back and not have things that you're supposed to be doing at any point in time, I think is, has been really helpful developmentally for me. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, and you, you know, mentioned that like playing World of Warcraft and listen to history podcasts. Um, I, I'm trying to do similar things. Like I, I bought Civ Six. Um, oh, excellent! So like, yeah, I'm gonna play Civ. I'm gonna like just be a waste man and just play games. And I found it actually really quite stressful just to try and play this game because I'm so not used to sitting around playing a game. Really? I, I kind of. Well, I, I just couldn't get into it. I, I was, I was, what was it like? You know, um, in in Way But Why, so Tim Urban describes the procrastination monkey on your back all that kind of stuff yeah Um, and he describes this thing called the dark playground where you know you should be working but you don't want to be working so you procrastinate what you actually do is not the stuff that you really enjoy doing that's really fun but you kind of like read the news or kind of just browse reddit so they're kind of Mm -hmm. in the middle of so neither working nor not working almost yeah yeah um and it kind of feels like that it's like I can't shake the sense that I should be doing something else. And I don't even think I want to be playing Civ necessarily. Ah. I just kind of, I bought it because it feels like I, you know, that's a game, right? And I, and I should be relaxing. I'm not sure what I want to be doing yet, but I don't think it's Civ. But I'm still kind of, it's a weird, it's a weird headspace, honestly. I'm, I'm sure I'll settle into it. Um, but I think I was just trying to like force myself to have fun. And if I've learned anything that's like forcing myself to do anything doesn't work. Um, so it's just really trippy, honestly. Yeah, no, I, I see that. I, I have always honestly sort of, I think struggled is actually the right term. A lot of the time it's been a struggle, struggle to do. And I, I think I'm taking this phrasing from fire exit Saul, who's, who's a really interesting guy. And, master of Twitter when he rarely tweets, but I struggle to do anything except what I really want to be doing at any point Mm -hmm. in time. And so I've never had exactly the particular problem that you're describing. So I I don't have any advice to you, but I wish you luck. And I I hope that you can Mm -hmm. transition to some, some other kind of state. Thank you. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Honestly, Um, I kind of saw it coming though. Um, Yeah. There'd be a weird transition and I'm just kind of, yeah, let's let's do this. Um, I think it's a good thing in the long term. Um, I wasn't happy in the job, so I'd rather go through this period now and, and see what's on the other side of it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I, I think this has been a great talk. I've learned a lot. I think it's hard to say when I've learned things at this point in time, <laughs> but I feel like I've I feel like I've kind of chunked a lot of things or you know added some texture to the way that I see the world. So it's really been a pleasure. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. And I've, I've had such a great time talking to you. So yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, this is Michael Ashcraft, M underscore Ashcroft and expandingawareness.substack.com. Thanks all.